Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game and is now only one game away from arguably the biggest derby in English football, if not the world. I'm Kevin Day and he is Liverpool University's Kieran Maguire. You don't belong to Liverpool University, Kieran. You belong to us all. You belong to the universe. <laughs> That's very kind of you to say. You're welcome. Well, and also Turkish radio, Welsh podcast, anything else, basically. You, won't, you do technically belong to the universe. Now, later in this episode, we'll be hearing from former Leicester City and Southampton midfielder Dean Hammond on Life After the Professional Game. I understand he may also have appeared in a Tesco bag for another club on the South Coast, but I have a very selective search engine, so I'm not 100% sure Kieran may know. <laughs> I once sponsored his kit. Did you? Yes. Did you? <laughs> All of it? Uh, just his shirt. Oh, I love that. We, uh, we sponsored... Who did we... We sponsored somebody's shorts one season. I uh, yes, of course. And, and Dean Hammond played under two Palace legends as manager, Martin Hinchwood and Steve Koppel. Which of course, yeah, you yeah. Martin Martin Hintwood's record as manager was uh, it got off to a great start. I'll say no more than that. Yeah, Agent Hintwood, we call him. He did a, he did a fine job. <laughs> um, before we talk to Dean, and I can promise you, there's some really interesting insight into life after professional football economically, and I think some of you will be very surprised to hear what Dean has to say. But we do have some news because it is news day, and the first story may not be about the biggest leagues in the world, but it is a big, big story, Kieran, because the EFL salary cap in League One and League Two has been scrapped. Yes, and, and, and it's it's bizarre because it, it's a salary cap which replaced the salary cap, mm. and now it's been deemed to be uh, illegal, and it's been replaced by a different salary cap, which was the first one. So it, it is, as always, when it comes to football and money, it, it's very messy. Um, but just to sort of summarise the situation, fo- following the pandemic, and, and I've said on a couple of occasions that um, the that, that, chaos creates opportunity Mm. and certainly the chaos which has been arising as a result of the pandemic has has created opportunities financially within the football industry but last august club owners in league one and two and i think we need to be very careful about how how we describe the you know we, we talk about clubs but actually we're talking about club owners they voted in favour of a squad salary cap in in the bottom two divisions. Um, It was almost unanimous in League Two for a £1.5 million cap, and it just scraped through on the two-thirds majority process in League One for a £2.5 million squad salary cap. And as far as the championship was concerned, it was so clear that it wasn't going to go through that they just decided, oh, we're, oh, well, we're, we're too busy, we won't take a vote. <laughs> um, and as soon as that arose, the, the PFA were extremely cheesed off. They said at the time it was unlawful and unenforceable. Mm. So therefore, um, th- there is something called, and you know, the world of football enjoys uh, enjoys a long heading. So there's something called the Professional Football Negotiating Consultative Committee, hmm. which is you know stick that on a scarf, um, <laughs> and and uh, that uh, that that involves the PFA, the Premier League, the EFL, and the FA. So it's effectively it's 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 a talking shop where uh, representatives of players and owners and, and the, the the administrative bodies they they can get around the table and and hopefully they can act like grown-ups um so the 
the, the the cap that was introduced was effectively forced through by the clubs. It didn't go through the correct uh, the correct protocols, and uh, the PFA decided to recruit the man that strikes fear in the EFL. Um, and this is the legendary Nick DeMarco mm. QC, who who is a barrister, who's, who's probably the country's you know, certainly the most most well known football barrister and he he acted on behalf of the PFA and uh, the the independent panel came to the conclusion that they were uh, in their rights to say that this was not enforceable and as a result of that um, we have returned to the old rules which was a what's referred to as a soft salary cap where instead of saying it's x million you're allowed to spend on on wages it's a, it's a percentage of revenue and money put in by the club owner. So clearly that's going to favour the larger clubs, we, we the, the likes of Sunderland and Portsmouth and Charlton and Hull in League One. Um, and, and because they've got more money coming in, in, in a, clearly in a non-pandemic world, which means that they can afford to pay more money on wages. So this has, uh, this is, gone down well with uh, owners of some clubs who now are in a position they can spend more money on wages. Um, the, the smaller clubs are unhappy about that because it, it, it has it has been quite a competitive uh, League One and League Two this season. It's not necessarily being dictated by uh, the ability to pay wages. So that's where we are at present. But where, where we go forwards in terms of cost control, uh, I, I genuinely don't know. Well, can I throw a quote at you, Kieran? Because the PFA, in response, basically saying this is great news, we've got all we wanted. But they said they would be looking to help uh, find reasonable and proportionate cost control measures in future, like like what, for example? Well, yeah, the, the biggest cost for a football club is wages. Oh, um, so a salary, we cap. Are, <laughs> a salary cap, then. Which is a salary cap. So, right. you know, it, 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 it's, it's, it's classic management speak. Uh in in my observation of of looking at the occasional set of football club accounts, income drives wages, not the other way around. So the more money you've got coming in, the more money goes out on wages. Uh, the game has had a setback in terms of its ability to generate revenue over the course of the last 12 months. That's likely to continue, you know, certainly for the remainder of this season. We're keeping our fingers crossed that things will start to progress in 2021-22. Um, so what, what I think is likely to happen is this summer there are going to be huge numbers of players who are going to be out of contract because in League One and League Two, in the main, you're signing a one- or two-year contract. When, when that comes up for renewal, I think that's when the clubs turn around and say, regardless of whether there is a soft salary cap or a hard salary cap, this is this is our offer, and if you don't want it, there's 700 players out of contract who might be worthwhile giving a call to as an alternative. So yeah, it's it's not a phrase I like to use because I'm I'm not a, a by nature a, a capitalist, but but market forces mm. will drive wages down. I think they've already driven wages down as far as the se- this present season was concerned before any form of salary cap, um, and the pandemic is likely to do that uh, even more so in the future. So 
regardless of what the PFA say, clubs will, will now turn around and say, we cannot afford to pay you more, more wages. And we're also aware that there's 23 other clubs in this division who are suffering equally uh, over the course of the last 12 months, and they're likely to give you a similar answer. So I suspect that players will be uh, reducing their expectations, as will their agents, as to what is a, a good wage um, in, in Leagues 1 and 2 for the forthcoming season. Mm. Palace have, I believe, 13 players out of contract this summer, which takes a hell of a lot of planning to get that amount of players out of contract at the same time. Just finally, on, on the salary cap, Kieran, you often hear people say, well, of course, the salary cap will never work in, in professional football the way it does in other sports because there's too much money involved. But there isn't more money involved in League One and League Two than there is in the NFL. So why why can't it work in, in, in English football the way it does work in other sports? Well, if, if you take a look at the NFL, um, it, it is very democratic when it comes to sharing out the money coming in. So uh, an NFL club will normally keep 60% of its gate receipts, 40% goes into a pool and is shared out uh, amongst all the other clubs. Uh, when it comes to merchandise sales, that's all organised centrally again by the NFL. Uh, so Therefore, there's not a huge difference between the clubs at the top and the clubs at the bottom of the NFL in terms of their ability to bring money in. Mm. Now, if you look at uh, League One, we've got a club like Sunderland, which can easily bring in 30,000 or more. You know, if Sunderland are on a roll, uh, regardless of the division, you know, they will get big crowds. And then there's other clubs in that division who have done fantastically well to get to League One. So, you know, the likes of Accrington and Rochdale and so on, for whom a big crowd is is, is a fraction of that of, of Sunderland. And, and that means that there's this, this huge difference in the ability to pay wages. And, and I think that's what's causing part of the problem. Uh, if, if the money was split, if, if we go back to, you, know, you and I are both old enough to remember when if a, if a club was playing at home, the gate receipts were split between the home club and the away club. Well, mm-hmm. you know, the, as soon as that that particular rule went, uh, the the race to uh, have a have big gaps between clubs started to to start, and therefore the gaps in wages started to arise as well. Yeah, and below League One and League Two, Kieran, of course, we find our friends, the National League, who have really been far from our thoughts recently. And Dover chairman Jim Parmenter has resigned as a director of the National League board in protest at some of the decisions taken by that board in recent weeks. He said he wants to be free to speak his mind. And boy, has he been speaking his mind. Yes, and uh, Jim Jim's not the only person. I mean, if you look at... Uh, uh, if, if anybody goes to uh, Southport's uh, website, their their manager Liam Watson, um, I, I wouldn't want to cross him. You know, he, he, he just he just gave both barrels. Yeah. Um. So so yeah, Jim Parmenter is very much from the uh, the grants not loans school of thought. Yeah. yeah. When it when it comes to how the national league clubs are going to survive, and and I think. Um, to an extent in the National League, it's a bit like comparing the Premier League to the Championship and League One in terms of we've got the National League itself, which is effectively Division Five of English football because the vast majority of clubs are full-time in terms of playing players' players' wages. Um, they, They have ambitions to get promoted back up to 
the the EFL or to, or to get there for the first time, and therefore they're willing to spend the money. And then we we've discussed also should there be more regionalisation in football. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think National League North and South is both an argument for and against. The argument for being broadly linked to uh, it does cut back on costs, but. Uh, if you take a look at National League North, um, the crowds tend to be a lot bigger. You know, there are some there's some big old school clubs in there, mm. and National League South is is very much linked to the amateur game. You know where where crowds of you know 500 is is deemed to be quite good. Yeah, um, and it, they are not of the they're not of an identical standard, and that's that's not a criticism, but it it does have implications for the game. So. So what we are seeing is the clubs in the National League in the main don't care how the how the money comes in so long as they get it because many of them are presently trying to get promoted and if you if you go up to the EFL um, you're going from a TV deal which is worth you know a, a few thousand to over a million pounds in league 2 so you can see why they want the seasons to continue mm. The clubs in League One, sorry, in, in in National Leagues North and South, they're saying, "What? Why are we doing this? What? What is the purpose of carrying on? Because we've not got any crowds coming in. We're not generating any income. We're also concerned from um, a safeguarding point of view. If, if we're going from you know, one part of the country to another, driving across, you know, driving, you know, a couple of hundred miles for a match to be watched in front of nobody, having the players grouped together, um, increasing the likelihood of people contracting COVID, taking it home, passing it on to members of their family. Many of the players in National League North and South are part-time. So therefore, it could mean that they end up, uh, if, if another player in the team gets covid all of a sudden they've got to say well i'm i've got to uh, i've got to uh, go into quarantine myself they can end up losing wages so so there's lots of negatives and the, and the clubs are saying we're at risk uh, if we take the what's on offer in terms of a loan and the players are at risk in in terms of a catching this accursed disease b passing it on to members of their family and and c uh, it has implications in terms of their regular jobs as well all of which is is very true and he certainly wants the season to end but then critics of him will say well he would say that because his club is second bottom yeah well, well so let, let's be honest Self-interest comes into this yeah. at all levels, and there there is nothing wrong with self-interest. Just but just be honest about it. So I, I can understand Jim's perspective. I can understand the comments. You know, we've we've spoken to Dulwich Hamlet, you know, you know Southport, and other clubs. Just you know, yeah. so, you know, some some clubs will benefit more from the season ending now than uh, th- that, that than others. Surely it would have been sensible at the start of the season for some form of vote to take place yeah. which would be binding yeah. and then none of this self-interest uh could you know the, the accusations could be leveled at the clubs yeah you know, hindsight's a wonderful thing last august we thought we were returning to you know tiers 2 and 3 and 2000 people or 4000 people attending football matches but uh regardless of who you support you you want uh, your club to be in existence and 
pumping pumping football clubs full of debt is not the way forwards. Mm. On, on the loans versus grants argument, uh, he's very much in favour of the grant argument, of course, so much so that he said the idea of making them loans is actually illegal. Is, is that something, do you think, that might get tested in court? Um, I think if you take a look at the, the internal constitution of some clubs, it could be that they are not allowed to take on debt beyond a certain level. Um, and and that's, a, yeah, that's a much broader governance and safeguarding issue in terms of the club itself. So we, we could end up with this crazy situation whereby the National League says, this is the way forwards. And the club says, well, we cannot do this because we are not allowed to do this um, as a result of our own constitution. There were a lot of matches that were cancelled in the National League's North and South last weekend. Uh, Yeah, they were supposed to be coming out of a two-week hiatus. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, yeah, the FA Trophy was taking place as well, I believe, so that might have had an impact. Um, And, you know, we we both have uh, mutual friends uh, involved in in some of the clubs, and, and they are... They're not sleeping at night because they do care about the the future of their club. It is important to them as as it is to all fans of all clubs. Yeah, it got to a stage last weekend when, as yet another match was announced being postponed, when you found yourself praying it was because of the weather and not because of COVID problems. We've got a trip to the naughty step coming up, Kieran. But just for once, let's go to the naughty step via the good step. We don't we don't visit the good step as often as we do, Kieran. But Plymouth Argyle are sitting firmly on the good step because they filed their annual report for 1920 to Company's House. I imagine you were there by the letterbox waiting for it to arrive and drop onto the mat. I'm sure that's how these things happen. But not only that, but the club's head of finance has written to fans to give an overview of their financial position. I presume you approve of all this. Yeah, absolutely fantastic. I mean, we, we've had Simon Hallett, the the uh, the relatively new uh, Plymouth owner, on the show before, and he is very much of the view that he is not the club owner; he is the custodian. You know, he is he is looking after it for the benefit of the fans. And, and part of of Simon's uh, ethos is uh, fans are the biggest stakeholders in a football club. They they are. Yeah, you know, we've always said we invest perhaps not financially as much as others, but emotionally nobody invests more than the fans. Mm. Um, and, and therefore, the, the report on the on the Argyle website is is absolutely fantastic. It says, you know, this is where the money's com, come from. This is how we've spent it. Um, even though they were impacted by COVID in 2019-20, they, they've managed to cut the losses of the club. Revenue and attendances were up. Um, last season when matches were taking place. Uh, they, they didn't have any transfer income, but they still managed to to cut their losses. Um, and also they're investing in in the future of the club through infrastructure. So I think it's a template as to how you should communicate with fans. You know, don't hold them at arm's length. Don't patronise them. Um, and, and if you do that, fans will respond positively. Uh, you know, we, we're not... We're not fools. You know, we, we can see through some things a lot of the time. Um, but if you treat us fairly, then then you'll get the full support. So the reaction of Argyle fans that I've seen on social media has been very positive. Uh, but you know, I'd also just like to applaud the club in, in, in showing that, A, you can get the information out early. 
uh, you know, not leaving it to the last day, um, and, and B, you can present it in a way which is accessible and engaging and understandable. If, if that's what you want to read, you know, you know, we are fully aware that there's only a, a small fraction of fans, but at least if, if they want to check up, they can say, well, this is this is how my club, this is what Argyle have done. And uh, it's it's been presented to me in, in a way which is which is fair and and equitable. And if that doesn't get us an invitation to the director's box when all this is over, Kieran, I don't know what will. Basically, um, I just like the idea as well that friends and family of Plymouth fans we said, "Are you walking a little bit taller today?" Yeah, Kieran Maguire praised us. Oh, right, oh, great, I understand. <laughs> um, meanwhile, <laughs> fans of Sheffield Wednesday and Derby will be going. I'll have the naughty steps coming up. Which who who is it this week? Well, well, friends, drum roll. It's it's Sheffield Wednesday. Sorry, Derby fans. Um, the owner of Sheffield Wednesday is rejecting an offer to buy the club. Kieran, is is that good news or bad news for Wednesday fans? Who I am now promoting uh, with a degree of sadness to the long-suffering category. From now on, Sheffield Wednesday fans are joining Derby in the long-suffering category. Yeah, there's uh, sadly there's more to this story than meets the eye. Lord, I'm sorry. Um, which, which is uh, is not good. Um, a, a few days ago, somebody called Eric Alonso, and I'm and I'm sure you're thinking the same as me. Who, who who's he? Um, he put something up on social media along the lines of, "It's with deep regret I'm having to sever my my relationship with Sheffield Wednesday Football Club. It's due to irreconcilable differences. Blah blah blah. I can't get on with the club owner." And people's first reaction, well, well, who's he? Because he's not a director of the club. Um, Sheffield Wednesday's sort of structure is is confusing. Presently, they don't have a manager. They don't have a chief executive, I think. They, they seem to have a, a very small board of directors. The the club owner, Delphon Chansiri, who's who's made his money in tuna, which uh, not everybody can say, of course, Um he he's uh, based in Thailand and he can't get across here because of COVID. So it, it's it's a challenge to uh, run the club. And he said, "Well, you know, this guy Eric Alonso, he's he wasn't involved in major decisions. Uh, played played down the matter, and that was fine. And then a couple of days later, Eric Alonso and." Some of his compatriots, some of his be involved in some form of consortium, are supposedly putting in a thirty million pounds bid mm. for the club. Now, Sheffield Wednesday, as we've established, do not own the stadium. So, did that thirty million pounds include Hillsborough? We don't know. Um, what did it include? What were the terms? Um, but it was very, very quickly rejected by Mr. Chansiri, who himself has put in an absolute shedload of, of cash to, to to keep funding uh, Sheffield Wednesday. Um, but it, you just get the impression that there's there's a lot of politics taking place uh, at and around the club. They've had issues, of course, recently in terms of not paying wages. Uh, they had the points deduction. They've not published their accounts. We've not seen any accounts from them since 2018. There's, there's never, there's never a good reason for, for for keeping that information out of the public domain. So uh, yes, I think long suffering. The fans are fed up, and, and the worst thing is is that results recently have been very good. Mm. Strange. Uh, if you were in Chan Series position, Kieran, surely would you not look to snap up the first? Genuine offer you you got to get out of this? Um, 
Yes and no. We don't know exactly how deep are his pockets uh, in terms of uh, his his ability to continue funding the club. And why do people buy football clubs? I've described it as um, vanity or insanity. Um, <laughs> and, and I'm never quite sure... On, on which you know, on, on which particular level, because it's it's very very expensive business to run. Um, it, it could be that he believes that he can turn things round. That Sheffield Wednesday, you know, who who made the playoff finals only a few years ago, they they were so close to getting yeah, yeah. to the the Premier League themselves. So you know that they have they have been very close under his ownership, and perhaps he thinks uh, another change of manager, a decent. A decent summer window, and and we can be challenging next season, and that's the reason why he got involved in the club in the first place. So it, it could be that he's willing to to fund those losses, and yet thirty million pounds compared to the losses the club has made really isn't making much of much of a dent actually in in the money that her Chan series put in. Mm. By the way, I can't tell you how much I panic when you say I'm sure you're thinking the same thing as I am. <laughs> in my experience that's really the case luckily now Kieran there are naughty steps and then there is uh, Steve Dale's solid gold-plated naughty step um, where he sits all on his own high above all the others and there's been a new development with the Berry administration this week yes yeah now you know this this is coming via social media so we, we have to be a little bit circumspect as to um, the, the the accuracy of the reports that are coming out, but Berry Football Club are presently in administration, and um, one of the things that the the creditors, the people that are owed money by by a company, can do is they can form something called a creditors committee, and therefore they they can to an extent hold the administrator to account mm. as to his actions. Um, and the way that a creditors committee is created is that it works on the basis of one pound equals one vote, i.e. that every pound that you are owed by the, by the company, that, that entitles you to one vote. And, Shep, and uh, Berry's biggest creditor is a company called RCR Holdings. Mm-hmm. Now, RCR Holdings claims to be owed £7 million, um, but that £7 million of debt, uh, that was questioned itself at, at, by a former administrator of another company who sold that £7 million debt um, to RCR Holdings for seventy grand. i.e. they didn't think that they, the money was ever going to arise. Right. When you then do a little bit more ferreting, um, and, and you know, we all, you know, we're men of a certain age who, who've been known to ferret, um, <laughs> you speak for yourself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, RCR Holdings appears to be um, controlled by the boyfriend of Steve Dale's daughter. Ah. Um, and, you know, here Google Maps is my friend, and I did a little bit of background, and I'm, and I'm not casting aspersions as to this individual. Um, but you know, when when you when you find out where he lives and then look at his house, you're thinking, "Well, blimey, O'Reilly, he, he, that that if I was living in that house, I I would be pretty amazed if I could find seventy grand uh, overnight to go and buy some disputed debts in respect of another company." So, uh, you know, 
are the is 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 Steve Dale pulling the strings here? And and the issue is because RCR Holdings have got a seven million pound claim, they've got seven million votes, mm. and they outvoted, in my understanding, all of the other creditors to say uh, no. We don't want a creditors committee. I we don't want to scrutinise mm. the activities of the administrator. Now that doesn't mean that the administrator is doing anything right or wrong, mm. but he has had a past relationship with uh, Steve Dale. And also, if you take a look at the administrator's history, um, you know, again, I've, I've highlighted this in the past. He has twice been sanctioned by his own regulatory authorities for. Uh, unprofessional behavior so it, it it doesn't look good and as far as Barry is concerned yeah the, whatever's going to happen the sooner it happens the better for all concerned we, we've got a fan base you know former fans of the club now fighting amongst themselves mm, yeah. because are they you know, are they FC or AFC uh, it, it's very distressing to see because you know, they've all got the same love and affection and memories um, of, of their times at Gig Lane can I point out, Kieran, that ferreting is one thing. Once you involve Google Maps, that tips over into stalking. <laughs> Pretty much. That's a slightly sinister. That's the idea of you, you at company's house furtively getting onto Google Maps. Um, this idea as well of, of selling a debt, Kieran, I mean, if, if anybody's interested, I've got a couple. But, very <laughs> cheap. but is this, um, this is a concept that I'm not particularly aware of. Is this a common concept, the idea of selling a debt? Oh, yeah. Yeah, happens yeah. all the time. Oh, okay. uh, I mean, if, if if you go back to the 2007 global economic crash, that was all to do with with, with sales and, and, and passing on of debts. Um, so you know, let's say that, that somebody owes you, you know, 10 grand and you don't think they're going to pay you and somebody comes along and says, well, look, I'll give you, uh, I'll give you 1,500 quid and uh, he now owes me that 10 grand at, and, and I'll deal with getting that paid. And you might say, well, in which case, I'll, I'll take that on. So that, that is actually quite common in the corporate world. Uh, you know, you, you've heard of uh, things such as junk bonds. These are often bought and sold. Uh, you know, I, I can recall in, in, you know, in, in the dim and distant past um, when I, I ran a, uh, a company which made medicines which were not regulated in the UK. And this is this is a terrible thing, not regulated in the UK, but they used to sell them to uh, Africa, to, to unreg- un- unregulated markets in Africa. And some of the customers hadn't paid, um, and I ended up selling the debts for about three pounds, three pence in the pound, because you know the idea of me going across to try to persuade somebody in Nigeria and Mali to pay me was was something which I didn't didn't fancy myself. Yeah, I, I think you just described the plot to the secret of the third man there, Kieran, didn't you? I like the idea of you. <laughs> Again, we've, we'll have we'll discuss this new development in your career at a future date as we've got a couple of stories to get through before that really interesting interview with uh, Dean Hammond, ex of Leicester, Southampton and A and other. The Venkis have pumped another £7 million into Blackburn Rovers. Now, I find this an interesting story because a few years ago they really were, I mean, hated isn't too strong a word by Blackburn fans. I remember being there when chickens were released onto the pitch in protest at their regime. Now, not only are they still here, and they're still investing in the club. Well, that does beg the question of how the stewards failed to spot several chickens in the fans' pocket. But, <laughs> you know, Kieran, they were, they were different times, kind of gentler times. But I don't think anybody would have predicted that. Even the most optimistic pro-Venki 
Blackburn fan wouldn't predict that they would still be here and still be putting money into the club. Yeah, and, and also the fact that they've completely won around the fan base yeah. uh, who, who now realise that uh, I, I think I'm not, I'm not going to try to paint them as, as innocent bystanders in this, but when the Venkies acquired Blackburn Rovers, it was a Premier League football club. Indeed. They had, you know, we, we'll be talking to, to Dean Hammond about, uh, you know, sometimes you need to do your homework and research and things of this nature. You are, they they hadn't done theirs in, in terms of their investment, yeah. and they didn't realise that Blackburn Rovers could get relegated right. and oh. the financial implications. So initially, I, I think, uh, you know, it's a bit like Mike Tyson says, you know, when, when you've got money, you've, you've got a friend for every dollar. Yeah. And this is what the, the initial position the Venkies found themselves in. Lots of people claiming to know about football, advising them on this, that, and the other. And, and all that happened was they ended up losing huge amounts of money. And they've now put in around about £190 million into the club. You know, and the club, you know, Blackburn has, has spent the last decade uh, you know, in, in the championship. It's had some time in League One. Uh, so in terms of the rewards that they've had, they, they have been pretty slim. Um, but without them, I, I hate to think of the, the financial status of Blackburn. And also I'd hate to think which division they were playing in. So uh, yeah, they, they've just put in another £7 million over the course of the last few days. Um, and it, it appears that, that every time the, the club you know, look, looks looks down the side, back of the sofa, and there's nothing there, they, they, they whistle and, and the Venkis say, okay, just this once more, we'll We'll, we'll write you out a small check. Well, fair play to them. One more story, Kieran. Uh, Fulham are seeking a fee in the region of £10 million from Liverpool this week when the tribunal meets to settle the transfer of Harvey Elliott. Firstly, will they get it? And secondly, is there a set of fixed criteria for deciding a disputed fee? Well, um, we've spoken about the elite player performance plan, which normally operates when one uh, when one academy player moves from one club to another. And that is very much set in stone as to the number of years at the club, the category of the academy, uh, the, the nature of the club that he's moving to, uh, and so on and so forth. Um, Harvey Elliott is a slightly more complex one because he effectively moved when he was 16. So, And, and, he, and he made his debut for Fulham at the age of 16 and 30 days. Uh, so he's still a very young man. Um, Liverpool snapped him up. Um, they've offered, I believe, around about 750k. Uh, Harvey Elliott this season, ironically, is on loan at Blackburn um, and has made quite a good impression. You know, he's... he's uh, he's a winger. He's, he's both scoring, but he's been very good at setting up goals. He's certainly turning heads uh, at Blackburn Rovers. Fulham believe that he's worth eight to ten million. Um, under these circumstances, you do go to an in- independent tribunal. But I, I do have a lot of sympathy for the tribunal. H- how do you work out yeah. the value of a footballer? Mm. Well, I, 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 were you asking me? Yes. Oh, okay. I don't know. That's why I asked you earlier. <laughs> don't take me by surprise by asking me questions. <laughs> you know I'm no good at info. What I, I'm surprised to learn that there isn't a set of fixed criteria. First of all, you say you know, age, how many games, yeah, blah, blah. But they, so it's, essentially they just have a discussion and listen to experts and decide that he's worth – well, they could do what you've you've said other people do in the past. Go on to some kind of I was going to say board game, and that wouldn't work, would it? But <laughs> go, on, go on to the database of a yeah of a championship manager or whatever, and, and see how much he's worth there. 
Well, that, that I, I suspect that that'll be one of the things that they'll be looking at. You know, right. what a transfer really, market yeah. uh, valuing him at. But as we've established, transfer market use uh, bloke, blokes in their bedrooms on spreadsheets to, yeah. to, to value footballers. They're not necessarily UEFA Pro license managers and coaches and things of that nature. Um, but in in terms of the fixed criteria, those are very much for players who are moving um, at a younger age. I think the complication here was that Harvey Elliott had actually broken through into the the first team, yeah, um, which adds an extra layer of complexity to it. I think they should ask Jim White to settle them all live on Sky. That'd be entertaining, wouldn't it? Or why don't they just ask you, Kieran? Surely that, they're missing ah, the trick. Not me. I, I I don't know what a good footballer is. You should see my fancy football team. Uh, of course, well, I know who you support. Speaking of which, Kieran, there is there is undoubtedly a glamour attached to professional footballers. Of course, they are. Most of us are still a little in awe of them. But the, the problem is that they are out of the game for a lot longer than they are in it. So what is the reality of life after football if you're not David Beckham or Lionel Messi? We spoke to Dean Hammond, ex-midfield player for Leicester City and Southampton and... Hi, I'm Steve Lamarck and every week I'm joined by Music Allies Head of Insight Stuart Dredge on The Price of Music, the weekly podcast all about the money behind the music industry. In each episode we discuss the very latest goings on in the music business and dig into the finances behind the big stories. So whether you're a music lover who just wants to know more about what really goes on in the industry or you're an aspiring musician, manager or label owner who wants some inside knowledge on how Spotify's financial model really works or what the future holds for independent live music venues, this is a show for you. Subscribe to The Price of Music in your podcast app now. See you soon. Let's get this over with, Dean. You also played for <coughs> Brighton, but I believe you also scored against them for Southampton. So let's confirm that, and I shall forgive you everything. <laughs> I did, actually, yeah. I didn't get a warm reception when I scored against Brighton, I must admit. Um, uh, one of my uh, few regrets in my career, but yeah, I did. Um, and also played for Brighton against Palace a few times, so that was enjoyable. Yeah, you played in the playoffs, didn't you? With that terrible nil-nil at Sellers, which was a shocking game. But then, you know... <laughs> It all went right in the end. Um, and can can I confirm, Dean, that you, technically you are still in football because you would you were due to sign for Worthing in, in the week before football first went into lockdown. Did that actually happen? No. Do you know what? It was. I'm not back. I'm not in football anymore in terms of playing. Um, I was at Worthing training with Adam Hinchwood, um, who's a friend, a former a, a colleague, teammate, um, and they were doing very well. Went into train. Uh, not had the boots on for a couple of years and. And fancy trying out and training and, and playing again and uh, signed on for them. Um, but then the pandemic happened and uh, it never happened. So, right. yeah, uh, completely finished now, mate. Oh, that's a shame. But um, at least the name Hinchelwood has been mentioned twice already <laughs> in, in this interview, which is great. This this is a football finance pod, uh, Dean. So much as I would love to talk to you about being managed by Palace legend Martin Hinchelwood and uh, Steve Koppel, we do need to focus on the economics of football and life after the game. Kieran and I are lucky enough to do jobs that can last forever, basically. But at what stage did you realise that it might be time to start planning for life outside the game? Or was the plan always to stay in the game? It's a great question, actually, um, and one that I've had to reflect on. I think when I got to about 30 years old, uh, from a financial point of view, um, I thought, all right, I need to put some planning in place now, some real planning. Always been good with money, always done the, the basics pretty well in terms of trying to pay a mortgage off and save and, and ISAs and paying into your PFA pension. 
Um, but then some real financial planning um, I thought was needed at the age of 30, thinking, right, I'm coming towards the end of my career. Um, and that's when I first thought about it. Um, but um, it's something that I wish I'd taken more advice on. Um, I wish I'd um, educated myself more on before making decisions um, and not putting so much trust in other people. Um, because I think as a player, you just solely concentrate on playing football and um, you don't have to, I'm not saying you're not concerned about money, but it's there. Um, you think you're going to play forever. Um, and it's, uh, you know, when that bubble bursts, when your career is over, um, it's quite an awakening, I must admit. We'll come on to the idea of advice and, and planning a little bit more later, but are there players who at the age of 18, 19 are, are savvy enough to go, right, I've got 15 years of this, let's start putting money away now, let's get a pension property, that sort of thing? Do you know what? There is there is some, and I think um, that, that type of people is, is, is or that type of players are from the background where they're from. Potentially have got um, um, parents, educated parents behind them, um, players that are potentially signed with very good agents um, that would look after that for them. So there is players that do that. I know a lot of success stories where players have done that um, but the majority of players I would say no definitely not it's it's fully focused on how do I become a professional footballer how do I become the best player I possibly can and then the money and the rewards come with it um, but yes I'm um, speaking as a footballer um, from a an area not a, a wealthy area not a wealthy background my education on money and finance wasn't what it needed to be. If Funny enough your sensible attitude to money that you mentioned uh, it's considered bizarre enough to be mentioned on your Wikipedia page. Which, <laughs> I, which, I, I know. Well, I had to ask my wife what sensible with money actually meant, but it does it does say that. So that clearly indicates that you are unusual. And presumably there are players who will be like me who reach a certain age who think, shit, I've done nothing. Well, do you, know, do you know what, Kevin? It's one of those where I mentioned at 30, I was really good with my money to the age of 30, really, very sensible. I was actually probably on the right track with what I was doing in yeah. terms of how I wanted to live my life. I'm pretty <laughs> uh, simple, basic person, um, enjoying my family life, I'm not that extravagant. But got to the age of 30 and um, had a few people in my ear, um, a few financial advisors advising me that I needed to do more um, and kind of change route and change path. And, and that really affected me, if I'm honest. Mm. Um, so, yes, I'm pretty sensible of things I've done, but through other people and trusting other people and, and, and venturing into things that I didn't quite understand has caused me a few problems since I've, I've finished playing, I must admit. What sort of things did you not quite understand? Because welcome to my world when it comes to finance. But what, what specifically? Because that's an interesting thing for you to admit. Well, just investing in things that I didn't uh, fully understand. That That's what it is, you know, being presented with um, an investment, an opportunity that was that was going to make me certain amounts of money if I invested in um, certain amounts of money, didn't realise that they were high risk, didn't realise that there was a potential fault to them or a potential risk. Um, I was just shown the basics of a, an investment, for instance, um, things like BPRAs, um, you know, tax investments, that because you're earning so much money as a professional footballer, you know, having a tax break or a tax relief seems quite a sensible thing to do. Mm. Um, but you need to invest in the right things. Now, when you're investing in them, you need to know about them. You need to be educating them. And you need to sit in here now and reflect, and it's easy for me because you can have a. You need to have a plan. Why am I investing in this? Why am I doing what I'm doing? Where is that heading me? Where is that getting to me? 
And a simple thing that I think footballers don't do, and I didn't do it, was how much do I actually need to earn a month? How much do I need to earn a year to live the life I want to live? And then you work back from that. And I never did that. It's such a simple thing to do. But investing in things I didn't know of and researching it enough to invest in it was a fault of mine, personally. Well, you were obviously making decent money, Dean. And of course, everyone associates professional footballer with huge money. But if you're lucky enough to be able to have some some surplus to put away, there must be players in League One and Two, for example, who don't earn enough money to put to put loads of money away to secure their future for the rest of their life outside football. Because that's the problem with football: you're outside it a lot more than you're in it, aren't you? One hundred percent. And there's there's risk both ways. I mean, if you earn lots of money, for me, look, I never earned huge amounts of money, but I had a good five or six year period of earning good amounts of money because of the success I had in my playing career. But then obviously when you're earning that sort of money, your life can change. Do you start spending thing, money on things that you don't need to? Do you change the way you live and spend a bit more that's not realistic for the long term? I think when I was in League One and League Two, I mean, I played in every division. When I was in League One and League Two, potentially I was living to or my means of living were able, I was were acceptable for the rest of my life because I wasn't earning lots of money. So I knew that I was having to go have to go into another career I was thinking about what I was going to do when I was finished. So that's one advantage to not earning so much money. You don't get caught up in in the football bubble, um, mm-hmm. as to speak. But when you do uh, start earning lots of money, you get promotions, you win bonuses. It can almost be a hindrance to you because you think, well, oh, I need to do something with this money now. Mm-hmm. I need to invest it. Um, so there's there's advantages both ways and disadvantages to both ways, I think. And when you realise that you, you need help with money, who do you, who can you turn to as a young player? Is it the PFA? Is it the club? Is it your agent? Do they do any of those people care? The PFA obviously do, but do the club, the agent, are they interested in what you do with your money after you've stopped playing football? I don't think this is not against the clubs. I don't think the clubs, that's part of the process for them. Um, they're there for it as a, as a footballer um, when you're an asset to them, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, you know, financial advisors become are under recommendation from maybe a, a, another footballer within the dressing room, um, and that's how um, the FAs work within the game. They work on them, prey on um, recommendation from other footballers. So you're not necessarily trusting the financial advisor; you're trusting the footballer that recommends him. Um, the PFA, I think, have got good intentions and try to help, but I don't think there's enough funding in that area of the PFA. I don't think there's enough staff or previous players working on it to be able to advise players um so they're advising from real life experiences mm-hmm. so it's difficult i must admit because it all comes down to trust who do i trust to make these decisions for me who do i trust that you know they're telling me the the truth and i can believe in what they're saying so look the players need to take some responsibility as well and this is why i mentioned you know you need to educate yourself as, as a player to understand what you're going into but i think there needs to be a little bit more help from from the PFA, from maybe clubs, from from ex-players that have gone through these experiences. Mm. You've sort of answered this question. I want to bring Kieran in in a moment, but I, I was going to ask you whether players do talk about money together in the dressing room, or, or is it taboo as it is in many other professions? Huge taboo. Really? Because you're always comparing yourself against no, other players. Right. There's always that competition. You don't want to tell someone potentially what you're earning because they may be earning more or not as much as you. And it comes down to competition. You know, you're, they're athletes at the end of the day and they're competing for um, a place in the team, but also competing against each other, which is nonsense, really, because you're a team. You should be in it together. But that's the 
the reality of it, yeah, there's not much money of talk in, in dressing rooms unless it's how much you've spent on a car or right. a watch or things that are really not that important. Um, yeah, and players, unfortunately, I think they're becoming more open, but it's still difficult. There is a taboo with it. Mm. I want to bring Kieran in here, Dean, because it always strikes me as slightly odd that a comedian who's an idiot with money <laughs> asks all these questions about finance when there's a, a, a football-based accountant uh, listening in. Kieran, I mean, just listening to Dean there, it, it sounds to me that football clubs and the PFA don't do nearly enough to help from a young age about knowledge about money. And we've talked about the fact that you don't get taught at school about money. But So you've got young men who are suddenly earning a lot of money sitting there with it sounds like very little help at all. Yeah, I, I do think it's a gap, um, and and that that gap needs to be filled. Now, whether that should be done by the PFA, whether whether the clubs themselves should take on that responsibility, but I think as Dean was sort of hinting, as 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 a footballer, it's a terrible thing. You're a commodity. And you're a commodity there to be traded. If you're playing well, you're an asset. If you're not playing well, then then they don't want to know. And the focus, and, and I suspect the focus is the same in, in the dressing room, is very much on the next match rather than the thought of taking the players out of the, the training regime, taking them out of that, that dressing room environment and encouraging them to, to, to get... A, a broader understanding and a broader education. But I, 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 I agree wholeheartedly with what Dean was saying in, in terms of the PFA. They are responsible towards their members. Um, this is an area they should be giving more time to and getting more expertise on in terms of uh, making sure that their members are dealt with correctly. We've spoken on this show in the past about uh, a number of players at Newcastle United, for example, who ended up uh, you know, suing their financial advisor because of high-risk investments that he was he was encouraging. Uh, you know, things of that nature, are, to me, are scandalous uh, in, in the modern day. Um, and, I, and I think that the lack of sense of responsibility by clubs um, towards their employees because they are employees. They're not. They're not just assets to win the next match. It is something which the game should perhaps be a little bit ashamed of. Mm. Uh, Dean, as we mentioned, most football fans think that when people retire from the game, they walk away whistling a happy tune into a, a wealthy retirement. But players like Neil Ruddock, for example, have been very open and honest about their financial troubles post football. Is that more common than you think football fans realise? Yes. I think it is. Um, I think it's it's becoming more known now because players are more willing to speak out and there's a platform for it and potentially ex-former players realise they've got a responsibility to help other players. I think that's really, really good. Mm. But there's lots of players struggling in silence. There really is. I think when I finished, I finished the game four years ago, I think there was lots of things when I finished the game that I would have loved to have had someone to speak to that had been in my position previously on a whole different matter of things, you know, of, 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 of well-being, of, um, of finance, of what do I do next, of finding my purpose again, and all them things combine into one thing of, of what am I going to do with the rest of my life? You know, I've, I've, all I've known since I've, I've finished school is I've played football and that's all I've needed to concentrate on. Now you come out the game with a family to support, there's different pressures on you, um, they're used to a certain way of living and you try to keep that up because um, that's the life you've led and it's very difficult and it's there's lots of players that, like I mentioned, are probably suffering in silence and don't want to speak out out of 
that competitive nature they've got and out of that maybe embarrassment of that I'm struggling I need some help where one thing I've learned and probably the best thing that's come out of me for, for lockdown is that lots of people have had the opportunity to speak to people because there's nothing else to do you know podcast interviews people are speaking about their experiences and and that that's helped me massively because as, as you hinted at, I mean, there are mental health issues as well, because no matter how much you retire with, you could retire with billions, but you're still not doing the job you love. If somebody offered me a magic wand now to end my financial problems, I'd be delighted. But if they said it means you'll never go on stage again, I, I don't think I'd be able to handle that. And that's what 95% of all footballers are, are going through, aren't they? 100%. And that's where it starts from. You, you finish the game. Um, you think it's wonderful. You've got some freedom at last. You know, you've 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 gone to school. You've come out of school. You've gone into professional football, and you've been told what to do every day of the week. Every day, I need to be here on this time. You need to do this. You need to eat this. You need to be here on this time. And then when that finishes, you think, brilliant. I've got some freedom. But one thing you lose is purpose. You lose. What's the reason for me to get out of bed in the morning? You know, and whether that's you've got money or haven't got money, you want to enjoy doing something you love you mentioned there about going on stage you know being a footballer you are on stage a little bit you yeah. go out onto the ground you you're you're playing in front of loads of fans you're feeling that passion you're feeling that emotion so straight away you miss that miss that buzz that adrenaline rush you don't have that so you try and find that somewhere else and that can be dangerous and then you you lose that okay well, what am I going to do with that you lose your identity I remember <laughs> one time at a, um you know, introducing myself and people would say, oh, what do you do? And I didn't know what to say because I wasn't a footballer anymore. Wow, there were a fan coming up to me and, and saying, oh, you're Dean Hammond, aren't you? And I, I almost said, well, I used to be, yeah, because wow. yeah. I represented myself as being a footballer and Dean Hammond was a footballer, not Dean Hammond as a person. So it can be difficult. Yeah, this is quite an extreme example, but Neil Ruddock once said to me in an interview that two weeks after he retired from football, he, he had a toothache and he, he didn't know what to do. <laughs> because for the previous 15, 20 years, he just phoned up the club and they'd, they'd sort him a car to a dentist and it'd all be done. And he literally didn't know what to do with himself. I, I, a friend of mine who's an ex-player, played at places like Grimsby and Plymouth, tries to give the PFA some credit for looking after players afterwards. But he says the problem is he went on a, a broadcasting and punditry course through the PFA and he said that was brilliant. But all it did is throw another 30 pundits into an already overcrowded market so it, it, it does seem that again you're not getting enough help when suddenly your football career ends and you walk away and that's it as you say you're suddenly an ex-footballer not a footballer and the PFA don't sound that bothered I think they can definitely do more I think like I mentioned there's good intentions from them I think it comes down to they haven't got enough bodies they haven't got enough time or enough funding to be able to get enough people working on it to be able to support the players that finish the game um, another issue, I think, in terms of, of funding, um, for instance, I did a, a personal training course in, in lockdown um, and the PFA will help you, but you have to pay it yourself up front. Right, first. Right. Where it used to in the old days, they would they would fund it for you. You get the qualification and be able to pay that or it would be a grant. Now it is I'll pay it myself up front and then I'll get 50 percent back when I'm qualified, which is not a bad thing because it gives you an incentive to, to become qualified. But if you're in a difficult situation and haven't got the money to be able to fund it, you know, where do you go from there? Mm. You can't take a loan out from the bank or you have to borrow some money from a friend or whatever. It's, it is difficult. It, it really is. The PFA, could they do more? Yes. Could they 
speak to people when they know they're finishing the game and, and just have someone to sit down with and say, well, okay, what are your intentions now? What are you thinking of doing? Where are you heading? What's your plan? I think that could be in place because a conversation can be really powerful. Just one thing before we go, uh, Dean, I'd like your opinion on this. Our big news story at the start of the pod was the the overturning of, of the salary cap in, in the EFL. As a, as a player, what's your views on the potential salary cap? It's a difficult one, if I'm honest, because I completely understand it in terms of it's a good thing that it's going to safeguard the future of, of a lot of clubs and it's needed that there needs to be some financial control within them clubs and some rules that they can't overspend. But then obviously from a, a player's point of view, from a fan's point of view, are you taking away that that dream of moving up through the pyramid? Um, you know, and, and, you know, bigger clubs, for instance, in League One at the moment, I think there's six, seven, eight ex-Premier League clubs, Sunderland, Hull, Portsmouth, Charlton, clubs like that, yeah, yeah. are going to generate a lot more money through their crowds than they're allowed to spend. And is that fair? I don't know. Um, but I understand it that from a safeguard in a football club and making the, and hope and gaining a future for the clubs becomes first, obviously, because you don't want to see clubs go out of business. Um, I just think it's difficult, but it could encourage, you know, one thing I'd like to see is pl- younger players through the academy, clubs having to play or having in a match day squad a certain amount of players through their academy not just within the squad. They give them a number 55 shirt and they're never in the squad. They've got to have a certain amount within the match day squad. Then you can maybe play a few more experienced players, a bit more money. Cap the younger players that then when they've played a certain amount of games or they get to a certain age, they can earn more money. It gives you an incentive to want to get into the first team. So I think the salary cap is a good idea, but I think it potentially needs to be structured better. Mm. I'm like you I'd love to see younger players turning out for for Palace but then you get the situation like you had at West Ham this week where the poor kid comes on to make his debut from the academy and then gets taken off again 20 minutes later because Moyes didn't reckon him Um, Dean it's been brilliant talking to you thank you for your honesty and your insight I I would guess there's going to be quite a few of our listeners who are probably changing their mind about the, the life of a professional footballer after the game and it's not as cushy or as easy as people think it is so it's been brilliant to talk to you and we wish you all the best in your uh, future plans as long as that doesn't include watching Brighton beat Palace obviously <laughs> <laughs> thanks I'm up soon. cheers guys alright mate all the best now thank you Kira I mean it's a, I found that really interesting and it's well, you don't realise, money or no money, you retire from football, you've got 40 or 50 years left, hopefully, when you're not a footballer. That's that's hard, isn't it? it, it it's hard. It, it's uh, you know, Unless you have played at the elite level throughout your whole career, um, then the money very quickly runs out. And, and if you talk to footballers, and, and, and Dean effectively was, was repeating this, um, you, you, you end up with a lifestyle which you have to fund. And once the taps are turned off when you retire, all of a sudden those overheads, which weren't an issue when you were a player, become they, they crystallise and, and they become very challenging in terms of you know just paying the, the day-to-day running costs, which we all have to do. So uh, I felt he was very open with us and, and you know very 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 expressive of sort of the challenges. And, and, and for me, that the big issue was. How, do, how does he see himself? You know, I am Dean Hammond 
ex-footballer. Yeah. How do I describe myself? Yeah. Yeah, it's very difficult. And also, I, I, I don't know what I was expecting to hear about the PFA. And he was obviously reluctant to openly criticise them. But I, I think I expected to hear that they were far more hands-on than they obviously are when it comes to the education and advice of f- footballers on financial matters. Um, they, they do have some advisors. Um, those have a perhaps a mixed record. Um, and again, this is no disrespect to the PFA, but if you are a financial whiz kid, who are you going to work for? You know, Goldman, JP Morgan, or the PFA. So, you know, in terms of your ability to give investment advice and so on, um, they, they do offer players, uh, this perhaps it, perhaps players are coming to them too late. Maybe you know, it should it should be that if you are a, a young player, um, when we when we spoke to our um, our our agent friend Jonathan, he said that there are different levels of service that an agent will offer, um, and, and and so on. And then another thing which I found very revealing was when Dean said, "If you don't know what to do about investments, what do you do? You ask somebody else." In the changing room. Yeah. Now, if they've got a Duff in Duff yeah. advisor, you end up getting a Duff advisor. Um, I'm, I'm also aware that some financial advisors will offer their clients a commission if they introduce them to somebody new. So it all starts to get complicated, and and we have seen a an awful lot of footballers struggle uh, both on a on a financial and a mental level post-career and remember 40 percent of footballers according to the pfa end up in some form of creditors arrangement or bankruptcy which is shocking um more needs to be done but who's going to do it you know, the, the players are focusing on the next game the play that the clubs view the players as transferable commodities so therefore they've not got necessarily a long-term interest in in the players long-term well-being um it, it's it's a challenging situation Two more things before we say goodbye, Kieran. Firstly, you and I, and I hesitate almost to mention this club again because I go from not liking to mention them to mention them three or four times today, but you and I have been asked by Brighton and Hugh Albion to do uh, a Q&A for the online match day programme ahead of the big game. <laughs> and one of the questions they asked me is, what do you secretly admire about Brighton and Hugh Albion? <laughs> to which the only answer could be the sheer naive optimism of asking me that question. Uh, I literally literally had to show that to Ed and Ali say look and and Ed just went go and answer it properly dad please I'm begging you Um, (laughs) and secondly Kieran congratulations mate this is brilliant news the the second edition of your book is about to be published with with bang up to date information and presumably a whole chapter dedicated to Derby County that's very good news well done Thank you very much. In, in, in a bright, in a bright, bright cover as well. Yes, and uh, oh, that's that helps. Let's buy a separate copy just for the cover. I love, I love the fact as well that producer guy added a note to the script saying, uh, "Mention Kieran's book," and then in brackets and block capitals, should we run a competition to give away a few copies? Because you know, who needs to sell their own book in the middle of a global pandemic? Why not just give just give it away? Just give away the fruits of your labour, um, the outcome of which is we're having a competition on on Sunday. Uh, so, yes, that's brilliant. So we will have a competition on Sunday and give away a, a copy of your book. But that's uh, very good news. Uh, congratulations. And, of course, if you have 
Uh, any questions for Kieran about his book or about any aspect of, of football finance or anything you've heard today, then it's questions at priceoffootball.com. We'll be back with you on Monday for our questions issue. And meantime, as ever, I will throw you over to Kieran, second edition Maguire, to say goodbye. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for all the feedback, folks. If, if you're enjoying the show, press that subscribe button on uh, whatever podcast provider you, you, you use. Uh, if you could give us a review, it, it does make a difference. According to producer guy, you know, we are trying to get guests and, and they look at where we are on the charts. And apparently, if you give a five star review, it, it helps push us up those charts uh, in terms of getting us noticed. Um, it, you, it's, you can say whatever you want. You can you can use whatever language you want uh, in terms of those reviews. Um, it, it doesn't it doesn't have to be positive. Um, and uh, sort of on a football note, if you want to say you'd rather it was uh, it it was uh presented by the new owners of uh Wrexham uh, football <laughs> club uh including Ryan Rodney Reynolds um because because I've been to company's house today and that's his middle name now, that my wife is in tears she's devastated she she doesn't want to get rogered by a Rodney <laughs> <laughs> or indeed rodded by a Roger. But uh, Kieran, <laughs> you were so excited when you found that out that you felt the need to get in touch with me. I, I think you underestimate what good looks and millions of pounds can do to overcome having the misfortune of second name of Rodney, Kieran. <laughs> well done for crowbarring that in. And of course, I just realised that you, now you've got a second edition of your book. You can have two copies to visibly display on your shelf when you're live on BBC News. Uh, which I am on later today. It's almost like we rehearsed these things. We didn't. Thanks, everybody. See you later, Kieran. Good luck. Bye-bye now. Bye. Some football.